Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. This is a midrash or an interpretation of the Hanukkah story by my chaplain, colleague, and office mate, Rabbi Ben Langton. He calls it the midrash of the mystery Maccabee. Back when the children of Israel were stuck with the Egyptians coming up quickly behind and the Red Sea blocking them in the front, Moses sought to reassure them by saying, see what a wonder the Lord will do for you. But God replied, why do you call to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. At that moment, the children of Israel were panic-stricken. Do they go forward into a stormy sea? However, one, a man named Nakshon, began to walk forward saying, Lord of all the world, I will not go back to slavery. I choose to go forward and it is up to you, maker of heaven and earth, master of sea and dry land to decide what to do. He walked in up to his ankles and then his knees and then his waist and then his neck. When God saw what he was determined to do, that he was determined to go forward and not to go back, for his sake it was written, and behold, the sea parted, and the Israelites walked through onto dry land. And the water was a wall for them on their right and their left. For the merit of his faith, this man, Nakshon, won the honor of presenting the first sacrifice to the dedication of the tabernacle in the desert. That was in the time of the Torah, more than a thousand years later, Aminidaba, a descendant of Nakshon, was among the Maccabees who fought for three years to defeat the Syrian Greek army and to regain the temple. It was she who discovered the little jar of oil with the seal of the high priest. The other Maccabees, worn down by the burden of fighting, said, why light the eternal lamp with this oil? It's only enough for one day. It's going to go out again, and then we'll just feel sad. But Aminidaba said simply, let us kindle the lamp with this small amount of oil, and at least then we will have holy light for one day. And who knows? Maybe it'll last longer than one day. So they lit the lamp and watched and waited, and as the priest started the week-long process of making new holy oil, the Maccabees saw that the light did not go out, not that first day or the second or the third. You know the story, how it goes. And it was just on the eighth day when the light began to flicker, and that was just in time for the high priest to add the new oil that he had dedicated. So thanks to the determination of Aminidaba and who had the same devotion to set a miracle in motion as her ancestor Nakshan, we celebrate the miracle of light as Hanukkah every year for eight nights. In both of these sacred stories, 
The miracle is the impossible becoming shockingly possible. Miracles are events that bend our perception, that exceed our expectations, and require us to accept that there is mystery and magic in this life that is beyond our understanding. Miracles are special because they are rare. More often than not, we ask for miracles when we feel like it's the only option left, when we feel like our life is just completely out of control, beyond our control. Miracles are so magical because, and so unprecedented that they're usually attributed to something greater than us, a God, a deity, the divine, something powerful, more powerful than us. Yet as the Midrash suggests, we are the ones who put miracles into motion. In hopeless times, it is the people who with love and courage persist that make the impossible slightly more possible and open the door for a miracle to reveal itself. Recently, I was working with a group of patients and one of the men in the group shared, it is a miracle that I am here. It's a miracle that I am sober. It's a miracle that I have somewhere to go when I leave the hospital. I felt moved by what he shared and I also noticed in myself that I was doubting whether or not this was a miracle. I have the privilege of seeing so many people get better. So many people have an outcome like his. And I think that I often have more faith in my patients than they have in themselves. But I know that for him until now, this outcome was impossible. And perhaps this is a sign that my patient and so many others are descendants as well of Nakshan and Aminidaba. They help make their own miracles happen by showing up, accepting help, and doing the work that they need to do to save their lives. Our own interventions do not diminish the miracle. In healthcare, miracles are a controversial topic. I want a miracle for all my patients. But the truth is that the big miracles like cancer disappearing or a brain healing from a traumatic injury or other forms of healing are very, very, very rare. In the past year, I've sat with many family members who feel trapped like the Israelites between two equally terrifying forces. Their loved one, be it a child, a parent, a partner, or a friend, has sustained some massive injury or illness, and they are unable to communicate their wishes of how to go forward. The family are left to decide whether to continue life-sustaining treatment, knowing that it will cost thousands of dollars, that their loved one may never wake up or breathe or eat without mechanical assistance again, or to accept death and say goodbye. It's an impossible situation a heartbreaking decision that all too many people face, especially in these times when our medical interventions are so advanced and we are every day facing our own mortality as we are challenged by the COVID-19 virus. I want there to be a miracle for everyone. Earlier this year, a patient who'd been treated on the neuroscience intensive care unit where I work 
came back to visit us on Zoom. His name is Jacob Handel, and I can share his name with you because he shared it with the world on the CBS Sunday Morning Show earlier this summer. He goes by Jake. And this is Jake's story as he told it to us over Zoom and as he told it to the CBS Sunday Morning correspondent, Lee Cowan. In 2007, when Jake was 28 years old, he was rushed to the emergency room at Massachusetts General Hospital. Doctors thought that Jake, young as he was, was having a stroke, but he wasn't. His brain scan showed something very different and very strange. Jake's brain seemed to be unplugging itself from the rest of his body. Jake's doctors were stumped until Jake made a confession. He was addicted to opiates. Jake started using drugs when he was 19 years old to cope with the sudden death of his mother. He had tried to quit hundreds of times, but each time he would relapse. Eventually, Jake's addiction progressed to the point that he started buying heroin on the street. With this new information, the doctors discerned that Jake's drug use had introduced a harmful toxin into his body and that it's causing damage that is part of a very rare condition with a very long name called toxic acute leukoencephalopathy. Only a few dozen people have received this diagnosis since the first reported case in 1982. Within six months, Jake could do little more than stare. He had ceased conscious movement. His doctor said, we believe that he's in a vegetative state, completely unaware of himself and the environment. He was placed in an extended care facility where he lay breathing by machine and fed through a tube. Eventually, Jake was put in hospice. Jake's stepfather, Eli, remembers getting a phone call from the doctors saying that Jake only had a couple days left. Eli says, I was just whispering to him. I didn't know if he could hear me, but I just wanted him to hear me say, we love you. You don't need this pain anymore. It's okay to let go. Jake remembers thinking, I appreciate that, but no. Jake didn't die that night or the next or the one after that. Instead, Jake's brain somehow sputtered back to life. His doctors still don't know how. Jake outlived hospice and he found himself in the hospital again. One day during rounds, one of the doctors noticed something, a small twitch in Jake's wrist. The doctor said, Jake, if you can hear me, do that again. And Jake's wrist moved again. The doctor called in a speech and language pathologist. And with the speech and language pathologist, Jake started to move his tongue and his eyes, almost imperceptibly at first, but enough to use a letter board to spell out a message that he had wanted to share for almost a year. I can hear you. As the word slowly appeared, doctors realized that Jake hadn't been unconscious for the past year. Instead, Jake had actually been awake the whole time, locked inside of himself. For months, he was silently trapped somewhere between living and not living. As time wore on, he began to notice that the visits from his family slowed. He heard nurses calling him brain dead. 
He even remembers receiving last rites from a Catholic priest. I felt alone, Jake says. I talked to myself a lot, a lot. And there were times when I was like, I've had enough, I can't do it. But I would always make it to the next day. On top of hearing everything, Jake could feel everything too. It was like, this is the worst because, this is what Jake said, this is the worst because I had so many needs and I was in so much pain and I couldn't even tell anyone that I needed or that my mouth was dry or that I was hungry. I couldn't say I love you or I'm sorry or don't worry. These were the hardest things. To pass the time, Jake would do math problems in his head to help distract himself from the guilt he felt about his drug addiction. As he worked with his speech therapist to develop his communication skills, he began to share more with his team. Jake really felt that it was his fault that he deserved this pain and suffering because of his drug use. And his therapist told him and helped him to realize that in order to truly recover, Jake had to face his grief, his sorrow, and he had to learn to love himself. Bit by bit, through months of work at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, Jake's body started to function again, putting on shoes, buttoning buttons, all the things he had never thought twice about before. Prior to his illness, Jake was a chef and he loved to cook. And today his cousin Kim is helping him to get back into cooking again. He has his own apartment where with help, he's returning to a life without drugs and without the self-doubt and grief that put him in the spiral in the first place. Jake says, I'm an improved Jake. I am a happier Jake. I don't want to give up. Sitting in a conference room with the nurses and doctors who cared for Jake, the team I work with every day, listening to his story, I felt like I was witnessing a miracle. And yet I could also hear how Jake being alive today, the healing that he's experienced physically and emotionally, happened because Jake and so many others worked hard for that miracle to happen. Jake's story also shares an important truth about miracles. When a miracle happens, it doesn't erase the pain that was endured. Just as the Israelites carry the memory of slavery and the Maccabees carry the trauma of war, Jake's miracle is only a miracle because he survived the immeasurable grief of losing his mother, the turmoil of his addiction, and the nightmare of being locked inside his body without being able to communicate. This Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, a season of waiting and preparation. As I'm sure is true for many of us today, I cannot help but think about last Advent. I remember how we waited and prepared for a vaccine that would be perhaps different from any vaccine we'd ever received before. We waited for a day when we could safely be here in the sanctuary together and when we could safely visit our family for whatever holidays that we like to celebrate. And the vaccine arrived during Advent of last year, December 2020. Was this a miracle too? I believe that we are the ones who put miracles into motion. We have to step into the sea of our fears and kindle the flame of our own darkness. And from those actions, something greater intervenes. There is space for the impossible to become possible. Isn't that after all the story of our human lives that each day 
We are surviving what was once impossible to survive. On the first Sunday of Advent, when we reflect on hope and the day of the first night of Hanukkah, may we light candles for all the miracles that we are still waiting and preparing for. We light candles of hope for the miracles that will save our planet, our country, our communities, and ourselves, knowing that none of these miracles will happen without our own interventions. We light candles for our ancestors, honoring the work that they did so that we may survive. And this morning, I light this candle for you, for the unnamed prayer that you hold closest to your heart, for the miracle that you are hoping for most of all. I believe in you. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to bring your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. These words are from the poet Adrian Rich. My heart is moved by all that I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when this service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.